Good morning. Thank you. Thank you for the beautiful music. Let's pray. God, you are good and you are wonderful. And I pray that this morning you'll help us hear our voice, hear your voice as we study a difficult topic. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. One morning on November of 1994, a truck driver was driving along I-94 in Milwaukee. He had obtained his commercial driver's license in Illinois by paying a bribe. He could not speak English, so he could not understand when other truckers and motorists were trying to warn him that a piece of his rig, a 30-pound metal bracket, had broken loose. That object would come flying off the truck. The car directly behind the truck would swerve to miss it, but the driver of the minivan directly behind him could not. The driver thought that if he took it on the tire, it might flip the car, so in a split-second decision, he ran over it. That metal bracket punctured the gas tank and dragged like a matchstick over the surface of the road. The sparks ignited the gasoline and the van exploded in flames, causing the car to go out of control. The couple in the car would fight the flames and manage to get unbuckled and out along with their 13-year-old son. The five younger children in the car, raging in ages between six weeks and 11 years old, would die instantly in the explosion. The 13-year-old son uh, would die soon after from his burns. Authorities would go on to say that the chances of a piece of metal lodging in the gas tank that would create so many sparks was astronomical. It was a freak accident, and it made national and international headlines. Eleven days later, after the accident, Pastor Scott Willis and his wife Janet, with their bandages and burns, would hold a press conference. In it, they would thank the hospital staff and would mention the man that gave up his shirt to help their son and another that helped out put the flames out on his wife. He thanked the first responders and a list of others. He explained that he was alert and of sound mind at the time of the accident. He said, and I quote, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Janet and I want to praise and thank God. There is no question in our minds that God is good. And we praise him in all things. God is a great God. He would go on to explain that God had prepared him for this trial. He would express forgiveness toward the truck driver and then with this, he became very emotional. He said, and I quote, We must tell you that we hurt and sorrow as you parents would for your children. 
The depth of pain is indescribable. The Bible expresses our feelings that we sorrow, but not as those without hope. The world watched, and they found his response to be as extraordinary as the accident. Little side note. Four years later, it was learned that the driver of the truck was one of more than 80 who had obtained an illegal driver's license through bribery at the Secretary of State's office. There was an extensive federal investigation and 75 people would go on to be convicted of racketeering and corruption, including the governor of the state. He would go on to spend six and a half years in jail. The Willis family would be awarded a $100 million settlement. Also, the Willises had three older children that were not in the car on the morning of the accident. And those children, three children, have given the couple 32 grandchildren. <clears throat> Their story, however, raises some questions about suffering. How does a person experience such pain and suffering and still have the presence of mind to thank the first responders or to say that God is good or to want to have anything to do with the Bible, much less quote it at a news conference? How does a person deal with indescribable pain and sorrow, but not as one who does not have hope? How do you do that? How do you prepare for that? How do you make sense of anything when you are suffering and going through a trial? If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. Okay, let's start at verse 3. <clears throat> Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating, as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, prepare your minds for action Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
Okay, this morning, if you did the homework, the topic is trials and suffering. We're going to be talking about this in, in more in the weeks to come. This is just a starting lesson. And so this morning, we want to do what we normally do when we want to get the basics of a topic, and that is we're going to work through those six investigative questions. Who, what, where, when, why, and how, and ask that of the topic suffering and trials. Okay, since it's a big topic, it's talked about all throughout the scriptures, we're going to focus in on the verses that you primarily had in your study this week. Okay, so let's start with the first question, who? Who suffers? Who suffers trials? We're starting with the easy question. All right, but before we do that, I actually want to show you something in Genesis. Would you turn with me to Genesis chapter 3, verse 16? We have um, studied this verse often. There are so many reasons to know this verse. Now, as I read it, I want you to watch for the repeated word. Genesis 3:16. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Okay, that is probably a familiar passage to you. It is about the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin. This is where a new word is added to their vocabulary. Did you catch it? Sorry, yeah. Pain, pain. Now they would have pain, and that means sorrow and hurt and struggle and hard work. Now they would have pain and everything that comes with it. Because with sin came the pain. And here's the first point on your paper. Number one, to toil, pain, misery, suffering in this life are a result of Adam and Eve's sin. Okay, this is where it all gets started. There would be no suffering in the world if there had been no sin. Legan Duncan says, always draw a line back from suffering to sin. Okay, Suffering to sin. All right, now, is he saying that all of your pains and discomforts are a result of your sin? Uh -uh. Let's say, for instance, you stub your toe on the way into class. Or maybe shortly after you find out you uh, need to put $1,000 worth of work into your car. Is that a result of something sinful that you did? Okay, no, no. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying is that as a result of Adam and Eve's sin, suffering is now a part of the landscape. Okay, it's going, to be, it's going to be the norm. In the garden, there was no suffering, but now it's going to be the norm. Suffering would be the norm for everyone born on this side of the garden, okay? And there will be no exceptions. All right, here's our next point. Number two, suffering is universal. It is no respecter of persons, it has 100% participation. All right, that's the who. Let's talk about the what. Let's talk about what is suffering. What do we mean by that? How would we define it? Elizabeth Elliot has a good definition for suffering. She says suffering is not getting what you want and getting what you don't want. 
That's how she describes it. Now, this morning, we're not really going to describe um, suffering because if you noticed, that word wasn't in the text. It's coming, but it wasn't in that passage that we just read. In this passage, we saw the word trial. Verse six says, you have been distressed by various trials. That's what, that's what we're gonna concentrate on this week. In, in the Greek, that is the word parasmos, and I have the definition for you on your papers. A trial is something that breaks the pattern of peace, comfort, and happiness in someone's life. And then if you notice the second part of the definition, it is then refers to the tests or pressures that come in order to discover a person's nature or the quality of something. Okay, simply put, a trial is something that's disrupting your comfort or happiness and at the same time revealing. All right, here's our next point. Number three, a trial is a revealing disruption of our peace, comfort, or happiness. Okay, you're going along, you're minding your own business, and then something happens to disrupt. Okay, and that's what trials do. And according to um, Peter, he says they're diversified. He calls them various trials. They come in a wide variety. You could have a test involving getting bad, serious news from a doctor. You could have a test resulting from losing your car keys. Okay, they're... Um, varied. Okay, here's our next point, number four. Our trials come in all shapes, sizes, durations, and intensities. You've heard the popular cliche. You're either going into a trial, you're in a trial, or you're coming out of a trial. My uh, personal observation is that everyone is always dealing with something. It's only the variety and the intensity changes. And that is no matter what the Facebook page says, everybody <laughs> is going through something, is dealing with something. All right, something else that we want to see, not only do trials have various forms, they have various reasons for them. And um, we're going to talk more about that, but I want you to see in verse 6. It says, even though now for a little while, if necessary, if necessary, that, that word if in the Greek can mean if, because, or since. Okay, Peter is saying that these trials that you are going through are necessary. He's saying there's nothing arbitrary about them. There's nothing random about them. They are necessary and purposeful. Okay, here's our next point, number five. Our trials are various and necessary and can have different purposes at different times. Now, will you always know what the purposes are. No, not necessarily. I loved how your author put it. She said, God gives us info only on a need-to-know basis. But something else we want to see. Verse 6, it says you have been distressed. Some of your versions may say grieved. And that word can mean made sorrowful or to be in pain or distress or made sad. Here's our sixth point. Our trials can be distressful, painful, sorrowful, or grievous. Let's put that another way. We should anticipate to have trials that cause us to feel pain, or sorrow, or sadness, or grief. Now, do we have hope? Yes, absolutely. 
Absolutely. But the implication is that living a joyful life, it does not rule out the sadness and the sorrow and the pain or the grief. All right. All right, that brings us to our next question. Where do we suffer? And I actually want to combine the where and the when and do those together. Verse 6 says, even though now for a little while. And if you remember last week, we talked about verse 1. We said that it was written to those who reside as aliens. For a little while, you're going to be scattered throughout the earth and suffer trials, various trials. Right here's number seven. God's desi sovereign design for us as aliens on this earth includes suffering for a little while. Suffering is going to take place here on earth for a little while. It's temporary. Now, listen. For the unbeliever, they have no such promise. There is no such hope. For the believer, the promise is that our suffering is temporary. All right, that brings us to the question of why. Why do we suffer? And there are numerous ways we can answer this, but this morning we're going to concentrate on the explanation that Peter seems to give in this particular passage. So look at verse 7. It says, So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, now we just said the trials were revealing. They reveal something. In this verse, Peter compares our faith to the refining of gold. Now, supposedly, supposedly, the process of refining gold has not changed much over the centuries. You will have a goldsmith and he will take some gold ore and he will put it in some type of crucible and then they fire up really high temperatures and that heat is applied. And then the gold melts and the impurities begin to rise to the surface and he will scoop those off. And the process continues until finally he is dealing with pure gold and he is able to see his reflection in it. Peter is telling us that this is one of the reasons that we have trials. This is one of the reasons why you suffer and experience pain and distress because those various trials, they're applying heat or fire to your life. And that's causing the impurities to come to the surface. It's causing those remnants of your flesh, those areas in your life that are not conformed to Christ. It's causing those to be exposed so that they can be removed and, um, and you can become a reflection of Jesus Christ. Also, it begins to prove that the authenticity of your faith is proven. Before I moved to Charlotte, I spent six years in a little small town in West Virginia. Um, my husband spent four and a half years in West Virginia. He had some job issues and he was moved south while I was left behind with the kids in West Virginia. We were waiting to hear where his company was going to place him. Once we learned that, we put the house on the market. Now at the time, I had a lovely, gorgeous home but it was sitting on a very steep lot. 
Now it was West Virginia, so everybody was living on some type of hill, but uh, ours was particularly steep and we were worried that it was going to be a problem when it came time to sell. So I had it in my head that if I kept the house clean and pretty, I might be able to distract people from the yard. Now, I had some wonderful realtors, and they made arrangements for all the realtors in town to tour the house before we um, actually put it on the market. And so they were asked to come and tour and then leave comments. And every comment that was left was a variation of this. This is a lovely home, but what is that awful smell? I was like what smell? <laughs> and so I asked my girlfriend over, and I said, I need you to be honest with me. Does my house smell? And she said to me, I think your house smells like cookies. And I said, thank you. <laughs> I used to bake a lot of cookies, and so uh, anyway, I had my realtor came over, and uh, she too, she couldn't figure out what the smell was either. We, we, we toyed around with some possibilities as to what it was for that day. But all of this, I just determined, okay, if I get any calls for somebody to see this house, this house will be spotless and it will smell good. Because in my mind, all I could think of was that if my family was to be reunited, I had to get this house sold. And so I was going to do my part. And so I would try to keep the house show ready, even though I wasn't getting any calls. But when I did get a call, I would turn into crazy woman and just take to cleaning everything. I mean, I was floors and walls and, and uh, you know, cabinets and counters, everything. I was preparing the place for surgery. It was going to be you know, that sanitized. Then... I would take the kids out of the house, you know, for three hours or so, so that there was plenty of time for people to get there and walk through the house and look at it in quiet. And then I would get back home. And I could see that no one had been in there. I could see the carpets. Nobody had walked on the carpets. I could see the doors were all the same. You get really good at figuring out when somebody's walked through your house and lingered. And then the call would come or the message on the phone, and it would go like this. The people stopped, they took one look at the yard, and they wouldn't get out of the car. And I would fall apart. Sometimes I made it to the closet, sometimes I didn't get beyond the dining room, and I would cry, and I would say, I, I would accuse God of, of pulling a cruel trick. I would say, you knew they weren't going to walk through the house. Why did you let them call me? Why did you let me clean for two days? Why did you let me wander the streets with the kids for three hours? Why? And then I would accuse him of not caring. I would say to him, do you not care that my kids are not with their dad? Do you not care that they've had to spend the whole school year without their dad? All it would take, all you got to do is sell this house. This can be fixed so easy. Why won't you fix this? Now, unfortunately, my meltdowns were in front of my children. 
And as the time went on, things didn't improve. Not only was I struggling with my situation, I was struggling with how badly I was handling it. I mean, I knew, I knew that people dealt with things far worse. In comparison, my problem was so minor. And so I would say, Lord, why, why is this just really pushing me over the edge? I had these visions of being this fortress of a woman in God and just being so faithful and strong, and I was nothing like that. Sometime later, after it was all revolved, resolved, I was very happy about that, but I've, I felt a lot of guilt and shame for what my children had seen. And then one day I came across a verse in 2 Timothy where Paul tells Timothy this. He says, I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. And the word sincere faith, genuine faith, it really caught my attention. And it caught my attention because it was talking about the mothers having an effect on the sons. And God began to use that verse to really comfort me and encourage me because it dawned on me that for those course of the 15 months, my, my kids had watched God apply a little fire to my life. And it was not pretty. There was a lot of kicking and screaming and yelling about the heat on my part. I can say with great certainty, that I did not make the gospel lovely, but I made it real. The melting and the scooping and the process was not pretty, but in the end, my children could see that my relationship with Jesus Christ was authentic. More than that, I could see that my relationship with Jesus Christ was authentic. I wonder, I wonder what your trials are revealing about you. The wrestling and the struggling and the pressure of the trial helped me to know that my faith was sincere. Now, it might have been incredibly weak and wimpy, but I had no, I, I had no doubt that in the end, I was a child of God. And that's what trials do. Here's number eight. God uses our trials to authenticate and refine our faith. Now, this is not the only reason or purpose for trials. Preachers come up with long lists. But this is the focus of the passage. So, all right, let's move on. Let's talk about how. How should we suffer? How should we deal with the trials and the problems? When I was preparing for this part of the lesson, apparently some Jehovah Witness missionaries had been to my house, and I found a pamphlet by my front door. And the front of it said, when tragedy strikes, how can you cope? And I thought, well, this is very timely. <laughs> Let's take a look and see, and see what they recommend. 
And so I skimmed through it, and on the inside it had various different um, testimonies from people and, and different scenarios. And one paragraph told about the earthquake in Japan back in 2011, the one that killed more than 15,000 people. And it told the story of a man that had been warned of the tsunami that was coming that was a result of the earthquake. And so he escaped to higher ground. And then the next morning he returned to his apartment building and everything he owned had been washed out to sea. Car, belongings, sentimental things gone. And then the article continued with three bullet points on how to cope. It said the first thing, try to focus on what you still have rather than what you've lost. The second said, rather than become self-absorbed, use your experience to comfort others. And then the third said, pray to God for practical wisdom to deal with your circumstances. And um, I found myself thinking, well, those are nice. But it's you know, not like the guy lost his wallet on the way home from work. The man came home and had literally lived through a tsunami that carried his apartment building off its foundation into the ocean. And somehow three bullet points just didn't seem to fit. When we talk about the pain and the suffering and how to cope and how to deal and how to suffer well, that's what we, we don't want to do. We don't want to reduce it to three little bullet points and cliches. Step one, do this. Step two, do that. So um, let's see if we can understand how Peter would answer the question. So let's go back and look at verse three. And again, I want you to watch for the repeated word. Verse three says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse 13. Jump down to 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. How are we to suffer? How are we to face trials? How are we to face the pain and the suffering and the discomfort that trials bring? What was the repeated word? Did you catch it? Hope. With living hope. Here's our next point, and it is a John Piper quote. Number nine, Peter's fundamental response to suffering is hope. Peter says that we are to prepare our minds for action. He says, keep sober in spirit and fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you. Where, let me ask you, where does the preparation take place? In your minds. What does Peter want them to know and have in their minds? Well, in this chapter, most every verse has something to say about salvation. And so, this morning, we are not going to make a list with bullet points. We are going to make a chart. And so, if you're paying attention to the time elements in this book, see my chart's up there. Peter seems to write about salvation in three tenses. 
He'll speak of it as if it's something in the past. <clears throat> He'll speak of it as, as if it's something current. And there are, there are times that he writes as if it is off in the future yet to come. And so today we're going to put together a little chart that is going to help us to make sense of this. And much of this is going to be a review, but we're going to put it in the context of suffering and in the context of encouragement in suffering, because that's what he does. All right, now we're going to call this the three tenses of salvation. And if you look at your chart, we're going to address the time or the tense. Then we're going to look at the doctrine that is associated with it. And we're going to talk about when it occurs. And then lastly, we'll talk about the, um, the part of salvation that it's dealing with, what, they're be what you're being saved from. So, all right, let's start at um, first box. All right, your first, on the first one on our list is your past. This is the past tense of your salvation. If you are a believer, you can be able to look back to when you were saved. Okay, you weren't born saved. There's a time where you can look back and see that you were saved if you're a believer. All right, what doctrine is this? Does anybody know what this is? Starts with a J. Anybody want to guess? Justification. Mm -hmm. This is the one that's referred to as justification. Okay, God justifies you. Now, when does God justify you? When does that occur? When a person believes upon Jesus for salvation. When a person believes Jesus, Jesus imputes his righteousness. All right, now, since the topic is salvation, what exactly were you saved from? Sin. You're, you're saved from the penalty of sin. Okay, you were saved from the penalty of sin. And the penalty of sin is, is what? Death, yes. So you were saved in separation. You were saved from the penalty of death. You were saved from the penalty of sin. All right, the moment you believe upon Jesus Christ for salvation, you are justified. God declares you not guilty and you're saved from the penalty of death. All right, let's move on to the next row. All right, this is talking about your presence. Okay, this is your present tense, I am being saved. Look, verse five, in, uh, you can look there if you want. Verse five, and Peter says, who by God's power are being guarded through faith. That word guarded is in the present tense. If you are a believer, you are currently being saved. Now, does anybody know what doctrine this teaches? Sanctification, yeah, good. Okay, sanctification. When does sanctification occur? Sanctification occurs when a person is walking in the Spirit. All right? Um, all right, this is that day-to-day -day growing and becoming more like Jesus. Justifi justification always comes first, and then sanctification will follow. Now, what part of salvation is this? What are you being saved from with sanctification? Anybody know? You're being saved from the power of sin. The power of sin. If you are, you've been saved first from the penalty of sin, that's past. Now you are currently being saved from the power of sin. If you are a believer, you have no reason to be enslaved to anything because you are in the process of being saved by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. All right, last row, that's talking about future tense. This is your future tense aspect of salvation. I will be saved. Anybody know what doctrine that is? Starts with a G. Glorification. Mm -hmm. Glorification. All right. This is the aspect of your 
salvation that we have to look forward to. Now, when does this occur? This will occur at the revelation of Jesus Christ when you are given a new body and your flesh is redeemed. All right, that's in the future. Now, anybody know what part of sin we're being saved from here? The presence of sin. We have that to look forward to. There is a day coming when we will not deal with the presence of sin and all that it entails. All that stuff that we talked about at the beginning, the pain, the tears, the toil, the misery, all of that stuff that comes with sin will come to an end. Will be, be no more. All right, now, we know this is the book of First Peter, so what is this intended to do? What does he intend to do? What impact should this have on us? What does he, why does he write the book? Encouragement. He wants to encourage us. Okay, now look at verse 6. Verse 6 says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. All right, what does he mean by that? What does he mean, in this you rejoice? All right, Peter, he is saying to his readers, I know that you're suffering. I know that you are dealing with with all sorts of trials. Some of you are going through some really intense things. Some of you are going through things that nobody else really knows about. Some of you are going through things that are typical, but there doesn't seem to be an end in sight, and you're tired. Peter says, I know that you have trials, and that they're distressing, and they're grievous, and they're making you uncomfortable right now. But in this you greatly rejoice. In what? In what do you greatly rejoice? In this. In the grace. In the three tenses of grace. Verses one through five is the past grace and the present grace and the future grace. Peter says in this, you greatly rejoice. Peter is saying, yes, right now, you're dealing with grievous trials. But you rejoice because your sin has been forgiven. You used to be dead in your trespasses and sin. But now you have been set free from the penalty of death. You no longer live under the wrath of God. Peter says, okay, you're right. You're dealing with trials and you're hurting. But you rejoice because you are being saved from the power of sin. Yes, you're tempted in all kinds of things right now. But sin has no hold on you. God is giving you and sanctifying you with his Holy Spirit. And not only that, the power of God is protecting and guarding your salvation. You are presently being saved. And then he goes on to say, yes, I know, your life is filled with trials and heartaches right now. But all of that's going to stop. You have been promised an end date. Scott Willis said in his interview that God had prepared him for the trial. And then immediately he gave his testimony. And he talked about his salvation. That's interesting, because all through the book of First Peter, particularly in this chapter, Peter writes of salvation and grace 
and the glories to follow. He writes of salvation. He writes about the inheritance that's waiting. This is a chapter about salvation. And why? Because Peter knows we have no hope of dealing with our suffering or understanding our suffering or preparing for suffering apart from our salvation. Now, these three tenses of salvation, that is the true grace of God. That is your complete salvation, and it, this is our bedrock. When the world starts to shake and things are falling apart, this is where we land. Peter says, this is what you rejoice in. This is what you hope for. This is what you think on. When you're suffering, should you make a list of all the things that you still have that didn't get washed out to sea? Should you make a point to not be self-absorbed and instead try to help people? Should you pray for practical ways to deal with your suffering? Absolutely. Those are nice suggestions. You might find comfort in them, but they're not your bedrock. They're not your bedrock. An American missionary that used to work in China to try to reach the people of Korea, North Korea, he tells the story of meeting a North Korean man that had been able to go to China on a visitor's visa to look for work. He was not able to find work because of his poor health. His family had no food. But while he was in China, he had a chance to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he became a believer. And when asked how he now felt about being a Christian, he answered, I did not have hope before, but now I have hope to live for and a hope to look forward to. He would return to China with something he didn't have before. He would return with the message of First Peter. He would not return with something better than a job or a bag of groceries. He would return with grace. Here's our last point. The true grace of God is our bedrock. Let's pray. Father, your word tells us that we're to grow in grace. I pray that you'll help us to understand all the deep treasures and the mysteries of it all. I pray that you'll help us to understand grace and to love it and to hope on it and to think on it. And we ask all these things in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.